0: saying that we were created in and for paradise, but that paradise was lost when human beings sinned against God. And when they sinned against God, they didn't just break rules, they broke relationship with God. And the result was really bad for humans, but it also did not give glory uh, to God. But God, in His grace and His mercy, immediately began a plan to rescue us from paradise lost and to deliver us to paradise regained. We've been tracing that plan throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And we've been looking at these kind of milestones along the way of God's unfolding plan. We've called those covenants or agreements that God had made with human beings. And we've said that all of this plan, all of these covenants, they culminate in Jesus Christ. And this is what we're waiting for in Advent. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas, the uh, eventual coming of uh, Jesus Christ. And what we said was, is that instead of taking us out of Paradise Lost and taking us somewhere into some other world where it's, it's Paradise Regained, that God actually comes to us, that the Emmanuel, God with us, and he drops down in the middle of Paradise Lost and does so both to identify with us in that paradise lost, but also to rescue us from sin and its effects. And that's what we want to talk about today, Romans 5, which is a tough passage. As it was being read, you may have been thinking, that is one convoluted passage. I I realize that. Um, But I think it's one of these places in the Bible where... uh, you, you kind of zoom out, and, and you're looking from you know 30,000 feet of God's redemptive plan. And uh, the Apostle Paul does this in, in Romans 5. So I think be, because we've been going through these covenants and looking into the Old Testament, I think you actually have some tools that you could use to kind of decipher some of what is in Romans 5. And of course, I'm going to try to help you uh, along the way as well. So what we find in Romans 5 is both the problem that is at the root of paradise lost and the solution to that problem. So, the problem that's at the root of paradise lost and the solution to the problem. So, Romans 5.12, we just heard this read. said, so, "'Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin,' He talks about the problem being sin. He mentions sin like six times in those few verses. And he tells us what sin is, where it came from, and why it's such a problem. Right? These are important answers to, to questions that uh, we should be asking. What sin is, where it came from, and why it's such a problem? What is sin? Well, sin is breaking God's law. Look at verse 13. But sin is not counted where there is no Law, so sin is—it's uh, actually an archery term, and it describes how lo- how, how, how far you've missed the bullseye. It's how much you've sinned, and so the target is God's law, God's word, really God's character—who He is. As image bearers, we were made to reflect back who He is, and when we miss that mark, we sin and. The law reveals to us what God's character is, and it helps us understand that we're missing the mark. And so, this this sin originates, and this is the the second question under problem, is the sin originates with Adam, the first man. You see that in verse 12, sin came into the world through one man. And so, Adam had a law. He had one law. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was his law. And we see that in Genesis 2. We talked about that back when we started this uh, series. And then in Genesis 3, we see him breaking the law. And and this is the the origination of sin. Now you may be thinking, well, didn't Eve take the first bite? I mean, why isn't he blaming it on Eve? Why is he blaming it on Adam? And and what Paul is, is teaching us here and revealing that, Was revealed in, like further revealing what was revealed in Genesis 2 and 3, is that Adam had a unique responsibility for what was going on in the garden. That God had created him first, that when God in Genesis 3 was calling out someone for sin, who does he go to first? He goes to Adam. That doesn't mean that Eve's not responsible because he does eventually speak with Eve, but he first goes to Adam. Adam had been given this responsibility for following the law in the garden. And so uh, we see that sin originates through Adam. Now why is sin such a problem? I mean, just broke a law, right? Just a rule. What's the big deal, right? And the reason it's a problem is because through sin comes death, the effects of sin. Again, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. We've been saying a, a, a lot about this condition of death throughout this series, that death really communicates separation, that we've been separated from God, that's a death. We are separated within our own selves, that's a death. We're, we're separated in our relationships with uh, each other, that's a death, or, or, or a breaking of relationship. We're, we're separated even in our relationship with the earth, that, that's, that's a death. Um, But the the, the way that we can can see that most clearly is in physical death, which is a separation, It's a separation of body and soul. The reason that the body is dead is because the soul has been disintegrated from the the body. And so this death, yes, affects Adam, but Paul's arguing this death condition affects everyone. And and he makes this interesting argument um, in 14, he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And so think, think about his argument here. He's like, Adam had a law and he broke it and he died. That's, that makes sense, right? Like that, that's what was supposed to happen. Moses had the law and gave the law to Israel. And so if those people, if they broke the law, then yes, going forward, they would all die but Paul says, no, look, death reigned in between Adam and Moses. They didn't really have the law to break. And it's his argument for original sin. That that Adam sinned, and through sin, the condition of death entered into the universe. And then everyone after Adam had this original sin. They weren't just committing sin, but they were sinners. And, he, and he's letting us know how... How dire this situation is, that human beings are sinful and are experiencing death. He's describing this condition of death as an epidemic, as opposed to a pandemic, right? It's an epidemic. It comes from one source, Adam, and then it spreads like a disease into the the universe. He also describes death as a tyrant, Right? He's, he's saying that it's raining and it always wins. How do you know it always wins? Because everyone dies. Everyone dies. Adam died, but everybody between Adam and, and Moses died. And he's, he's like, look at the evidence. Everyone has experienced death, so therefore everyone is a sinner. And if you think, well, maybe some weren't affected. Maybe some weren't infected by sin and death. In verse 12, he said, death spread to all men because all sin. So, here's his other argument. Not only that they die, but they sin. Everyone sins. And so, he points to this as, a, as a, uh, this, this evidence for original sin. He has made this argument earlier in Romans, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." So that's the problem. That's what's at the root of paradise loss is is sin and the effects of sin known as death. So we need a remedy for this problem. We need a reversal for this problem. And human beings are constantly working to try to remedy or reverse death. I mean, think about this. This is, in a lot of ways, what religion is. I, I told you earlier in the series, uh, religion uh, comes from this idea of religging, right? Religamenting, that there's this separation between human beings and the divine, and religion is trying to use either mystical experiences or ethical living or some kind of a, a ritual that you go through to try to relig yourself with God. We, we all have this sense that that we we need to fix something. There's a problem, and so sometimes we can go to religion uh, for that. But in our modern age, I think it's more uh, going to science for this. You think about exercise science. Uh, There's a recent study out comparing the the muscles of 20-somethings with muscles of 70-somethings who have been lifelong exercisers. And what they found is that there's really no difference between the muscles of the twenty-somethings and the muscles of the seventy-somethings, uh, who have been lifelong exercisers. And there's you know, lots of excitement like, wow, we can stay young if we just exercise. Like that's a big news, right? I, I don't know. Um, food science. Like we we love whatever the latest superfood is, right? because it's gonna keep us young or it's gonna make us younger. So as far as I could tell from the internet chatter, watercress is the latest <laughs> superfood. So I don't know, I, it's some sort of green that grows in the water and I, whatever. So, but it will, it will somehow reverse you know, your aging or stop your aging. And then you know, all this is kinda connected to, to medical science and so there's this talk of the epigenetic clock but there's this clock that you have in, in your body, in your biological systems, that's tracking how old you are. And you do certain things that are uh, not healthy, that, that cause you to be at risk, and it's talking to your epigenetic clock and it's saying, no, you're not 51, you're 61, right? But if you could exercise and eat watercress, you, you could turn back the epigenetic clock, and, and you, you could tell your epigenetic clock that you are actually 41, not 51, okay? Now, these things aren't necessarily bad, but they're not really getting to the root of the problem. They are not getting at the root of the problem, because the problem is a spiritual disaster of cosmic proportions. A little watercress is not going to fix this problem. You can think about it this way, if we think about a disaster, so this is a a disaster story. I know you're glad you came today. Um, Pan Am Flight 103, it crashed in 1988, and it was a terrorist bombing. It went down in uh, Scotland, and it was like really one of the first terrorist attacks against Americans wasn't on the soil of, of America, but it was against a good number of Americans that were on this plane. And so the FBI has been trying to reassemble this plane as best they can, and, and the debris was strewn all over the place, and, and so they've been collecting, and they're still working on it. This is your tax dollars that are going to this 30-year project of trying to put Pan Am 103 back together to try to figure out what exactly happened when an individual got on this plane and, and de- detonated uh, a bomb. So think about this. If, if you were to tell this FBI agent, actually, I need you to reassemble this wreckage to the point where this Pan Am 103 is back to its original condition when it was, came out of the, the, the factory. Or even more to say, not only do I need you to reassemble this Pan Am uh, commercial jet to, to its, original, uh, its original state, but I need you to reassemble the human bodies that were in that Pan Am 103 and reanimate re-an- them so that they are now alive. Right. I'm pretty sure there's no FBI agent that would take that job on. But this is, this is the kind of problem we have, the kind of disaster we have in the fall of humanity, and it's the kind of solution we need if we're going to actually remedy and reverse the death that's occurred because of sin. And this is the kind of remedy that I think we all know we need. We need something from the outside to remedy and reverse the, the mess that this world is, is in. I think it's one of the reasons why most people really love Christmas, even if their Christmas doesn't really have Christ in it, but they love the idea of like Christmas magic, right? Like, I mean, every Christmas show you watch, there's typically some kind of Christmas magic. And, and, and so we just have this desire for something outside of ourselves, something supernatural that could somehow come from the outside and make the bad things good. And, and usually in these shows, the Christmas magic is, is going to do something that no human could ever accomplish. Right? And so Paul offers up something a little more, well, a whole lot more substantive than Christmas magic. Here in Romans 5.15, he gets at the solution. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one's man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So here's the solution to the problem of sin and its effects. It's, it's a gift, it's a free gift, it's, it's grace, right? He mentions either gift or grace like six times in that little section. And there's four truths about this gift or this grace. And he, he, he tells us what the gift isn't, what the gift is, who the gift is from, and what the gift is for. What the gift isn't, what the gift is, who the gift is from, what the gift is for. So what the gift isn't. The free gift is not like the trespass, he says in verse 15. It's his way of saying the gift is not earned. What humans have earned is judgment and condemnation, like the trespass. The trespass is the earning of judgment and condemnation. Judgment meaning we've been declared guilty, but not only that, we're under the punishment that we deserve for the guilt. That's what he means when he's like judgment and condemnation. And we've earned this by breaking God's law, by trespassing. Uh, he, he'll say this in a summary form in Romans 6.23, the very next uh, chapter, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus Our Lord, the wages we deserve is death, this disintegration of our relationship with God and self, others, earth. And the undeniable proof of that is that we die physically. But even worse is that we will be spiritually dead if a solution does not come around. We will be separated from God for eternity. This is known as hell. And this is the ultimate disintegration, the ultimate death. This is what we've earned. But he says that the gift is not like that. The gift is a gift. A gift is not earned. A gift is given to you freely by a giver. And so this solution to the root problem is not a 50-50 deal with God. It's not God saying, okay, I'll do 50%, and then you try real, really hard, and you do 50%, and then you'll be saved from sin and its effects. It's not even a 99.1%. It's 100% God. That's what grace means. That's what this idea of a gift means. It's paid for 100% by God. Theologians say use this word uh, monergistic, that salvation is monergistic. It's one work. There's one worker, and it's God. As opposed to synergistic, which we talk about, we use that word all the time. We want to have a, a synergy, right? we want to collaborate. That is not how your salvation works. Your salvation is not a collaboration with God. Your salvation is monergistic. God is the only one doing the work. He is saving you. He is offering up the 100% needed. That's, that's why it's called a gift. Another way to say it is that your salvation is by grace alone. It's not grace plus. If it was grace plus, it wouldn't be grace. And so it is is 100% God's doing. And not only do we not deserve this gift, but we deserve death. A lot of times we say grace is unmerited favor, but really we should say grace is demerited favor. We're not like in a neutral position here. And then we're given a gift. We're in a negative position. We're in a demerited position. And we are given this gift of grace. So what is the gift? Who is it from? I'm, I'm, I'm putting those questions together because the answer is the same. God. What is the gift? Who is it from? God. That's the answer. Verse 15, he, he says this, "...much more have the grace of of God, the grace of God, he's letting us know the gift is from God, the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. And so, he points to this idea that God is giving a gift, God is giving grace, but then he says that the the gift itself is, is Jesus. And here he points to Jesus being a man, being a human, but Jesus is also divine. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas, the Incarnation, that, that the God the, the Son is uh, divine. He's the second person of the Trinity, but then he takes on human flesh. He adds a human nature. And Paul, in Romans, talks about Jesus being both God and man together in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. And here he's talking about Israel. And this is, I think this is interesting for us because we've just been through all these covenants. But Romans 9, verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Right? So he just kind of run through the Old Testament, and he's just like, this, all this stuff was ex- experienced by Israel in the Old Testament. And he says, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, so there's the human part, who is God. Overall, blessed forever. Amen. So, so we have God, the Father, the giver, giving the gift of God, the Son. And He is this gift of grace. And it's not just that He comes in human form, although that is an amazing gift, don't get me wrong, but He comes in human form so that He can do what is necessary to reverse sin and its effects, and he does that by dying on the cross for sin. He pays the penalty of death that we deserved so that he could then take on that payment for us. He's not just dealing with symptoms. Watercress is dealing with symptoms. Jesus is dealing with the root cause of paradise loss, which is sin. And so While sin came in through the one man, Adam, sin is dealt with through the one man, Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just pay for the sin. He goes one step further. Talk about a generous gift. Verse 17, "...for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and," don't miss this, "...the free gift of righteousness." Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So not only is he taking care of the payment for sin, which kind of brings us back to to neutral, but then he gives us the gift of righteousness, which then reckons to our account his righteousness. Uh, It would be a little bit like, let's say, Bill Gates takes a look at your finances, and he sees, oh, look at all that student debt. That's horrible. I'll pay for that student debt. And then he brings you up to zero. And I mean, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? And, and you're like having, a, having your friends over, having a party. Bill Gates, he paid my student debt. It's amazing. But then he calls and he says, actually, I put a billion dollars in your account as well. Right? Then you, I think you'd probably have another party, right? <laughs> this, is what, this is what Jesus, he, he, he's, he's paying your debt for your sin, which is infinite in cost. <laughs> All right, And then he's giving you his righteousness. He's, putting, he's reckoning his righteousness to your account. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Where your sin is imputed to Jesus. It is reckoned to Jesus' account so that he can die on the cross for your sin. But then Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It's reckoned to your account. And that, that righteousness, you, you'll be living off that account for eternity. You'll be in heaven by grace. Year 1,000, year 1 million, year 3 billion, that will all be by grace. You'll be drawing on that account for eternity. That's even better than Bill Gates' 1 billion, right? Now what's this gift for? Verse 18 through 21, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what's the gift for? Well, the gift is for justification and life. You see Paul saying this over and over and over again. If you were to go back into verse 16, he says, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. He's letting us know the gift is so that you will be justified. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Verse 18 that we just read, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 21, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, justification is a a judicial term that communicates the being declared righteous. That you were once a sinner, but now because of what Christ has done for you, you are declared righteous righteous, and that it's an alien righteousness. This is not something that you mustered up, that you tried really hard to be righteous, but it's a righteousness from the outside. It is a gift, just like we talked about earlier. Not only is is God forgiving your sin, but He is imputing to you righteousness through Christ. And that new position of being justified Reconciles you to God, and now you're back in the garden. You're experiencing life, right? justification and life. This is why he puts these two together. It's because now your new legal status has practical implications. So now the disintegration between you and God has now been dealt with, that sin and its effects have been dealt with, and now you are reintegrated with God. You have a new standing with God, and now you are experiencing life, and it's not just temporary life. It's not just, I feel a little bit better because I eat a lot of watercress life. It's eternal life. That's the kind of life that you get through this gift, and this is the entire purpose of God's activity throughout the Bible. This This is what He's been up to. This is what these covenants have been pointing forward to is this gift, this gift of the person of Christ, but, but also the work of Christ that He does to forgive us of our sins and to give us His righteousness. This is good news. This is good news. Now how do I respond to this good news? That was tucked in there, we go back to Romans 5.17. Hear it again. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, how, how do you access a gift? You receive it. You receive it. And this, this, is, this is also known as faith. Now, one way we, one way we could sum this up, and I'm, I'm stealing from the five solos of the Reformers, but it is by grace, through faith in Christ, right? It is by grace alone. It's by grace alone. It's 100% God. It is monergistic. It's not synergistic. It is by grace alone, through faith alone that the instrument through which you access this gift is faith. Francis Schaeffer, he always uses this uh, phrase where he said, use, use the open hand of faith. Right? The gift, gift is being offered and you open your hand. This is basically what, what you're doing when you become a Christian. You're receiving that gift of grace, that gift of salvation that God has afforded for you. And that faith is not just faith in general. You know, this is another Christmas thing. Like, just to have faith. you know, I, It's faith in Christ, faith in Christ alone, and both the person and the work of Christ. Not, not just Christ is a great guy, and He said a lot of cool things, and I believe in Him. No, that He died on the cross for your sins. That's what we're believing in, and that He's given us His righteousness as a free gift. And so, If you've never received that gift today, that that would be the first place to start. That's that's how you respond to this sermon. First and foremost is you receive that gift of grace that's been offered to you on the cross of Christ, that you could be forgiven and that you could be made righteous, resulting in your justification and life. That is the good news of the gospel, to receive that by faith uh, today. So if you haven't done that, then do that. From your heart to God, pray, ask Him to forgive you and to give you that new life that He is eager to give you. I mean, He He wants to give this this gift. This is why Christ went to the cross uh, to pay for that gift. But if you've I've already received that, uh, just being reminded of those truths, I, I think is, is it's it's freeing, right? To be reminded of these things and and it just it causes you want to worship. You know, that God has been so generous to us, that He has done the work of saving us, and we get to respond with gratitude and, and with worship. But I also think it should prompt us to repentance. And, and every week you're hearing this gospel preached in, in some form, and every week as we get down to the end of the sermon, it, it's an opportunity to repent, especially before we go into the communion time. And there's kind of two categories of repentance that needs to happen when we're doing this. It's kind of broad, broad categories. So one is repenting from legalism. And, and, and I mean, legalism is, is a time in your life when you're thinking that somehow your moral choices, your behaviors are, are somehow purchasing your right standing with God. That's legalism. And we can easily sneak into this. We, we, can, we just roll right into that so easily on a pretty regular basis. Now, how you know you've rolled into some, some legalism, uh, here's a couple, few ways you can know. One is you feel ongoing condemnation. Right? Later in Romans 8, Paul will say, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about conviction of sin. That's healthy. The Holy Spirit's convicting you of sin that you need to confess, you need to repent of. But if you're feeling condemnation, If you're you're thinking, I'm separated from God and and, and if I don't get my act together and I don't do X, Y, Z, then then I'm not going to be made right with God. You need to repent of that. That, That's not believing in the grace of the gospel. Or feeling of superiority over others is, is another way that you know you've fallen into legalism where you're looking at other Christian brothers and sisters and, and you're saying, oh, I can't believe they behave that way. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a red flag that lets you know you think that whatever righteousness you have comes from your effort. Instead of thanking God for whatever growth you may have experienced and praying for and hoping for growth in your brother and sister in Christ. We, again, we all fall into this on a fairly regular basis. But the gospel should, should cause us to repent from these, these things. Or the thought that God owes me, that I've lived my life in, in a certain way, or I've, I've done some things that, that God should be really excited about, and I've kind of put my time in, and now he owes me this, whatever this is. And it's usually in the midst of suffering, when we're like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this suffering. You shouldn't let this kind of stuff happen to me after all I've done for you, God. <laughs> now, we don't say it like that. We spiritualize it. But, but, but that is a, that's a sign that legalism has crept in. And, and so as we, as we hear this good news of God's saving us, it, it should cause us to repent from legalism. Uh, it should also cause us to repent from, I'll call it, license, of thinking, well, it's all grace, I just live however I want. That, that's also something that needs to be repented of. And it's also something that the grace of the gospel should cause you to want to repent out of. Right? If, if you see how good the salvation is that God has provided for you, it, it, it shouldn't produce in you an apathy, a kind of a lackadaisical attitude toward the holiness of God and His call on your life to repent and and believe, to obey. It'd be like if I said, okay, uh, I'm going to give up my life so that you can have a lung transplant. And then you get out of the hospital, the first thing you do is buy a pack of cigarettes. You wouldn't do that, I don't think. But this is what we're we're saying. Oh, God, you saved me from sin. God, thank you so much. Now I'm going to go participate in that sin that you saved me from. But when we hear the goodness of the gospel, it it should cause us to to want to repent from giving in to sin. Paul gets into that the very next chapter. I think he knows this is one of the the things that we might fall in if if we uh, understand that salvation is by grace alone. He says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so, this, this reminder of the, the goodness of the gift that God has given us, the forgiveness of our sins, and this imputed righteousness that's been given to us, both now and forevermore, should cause us to repent from legalism, repent from license. We're reminded of this gift every time we come to this table, do we not? When Jesus took bread on the night in which he was betrayed. Even that phrase, He's being sinned against, and he takes that bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. To those who who are sinning against him, that are going to sin against him, what does he do? He gives them a gift, and the gift is himself. And in the same way, he takes the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the... New covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's letting them know that that death he's going to die on the next day is going to deal not just with a few of the effects of sin, but it's going to deal with sin. It's going to deal with the root of the problem of paradise loss. And by doing that, He forgives us of our sins and reckons His own righteousness to our account, resulting in our eternal life. And so He has us do this as a church over and over and over again to remind ourselves of the gift. So when you come down here in a minute, I want you to to receive this gift with an open hand, and it's a reminder to you that this this is not work that you've done, this is work that God has done and he's offered it freely. And you received that when you became a Christian, but you continue to receive that transforming grace both now and forevermore. And that is good news of the greatest gift that you could have ever received. Let's pray. Lord, you are generous. You are a generous and loving Father who has given us a gift that is so much more than christmas magic or some kind of a touchy feely sort of um, warm warm feeling lord th- this gets down to the root of sin and all of its effects and so lord sometimes we we feel hopeless in the face of, of its effects in our own lives and in the, in the in this world lord but we are so grateful that today we know of this gift, this gift that forgives sin and remedies and reverses all of sin's effects. And so, as we trust in that, Lord, help us to to hope in this gift, Lord, and and to to receive it today with humility and, and do so with humble hearts that are coming before you in repentance. And Lord, we so easily can fall into thinking that somehow we're working ourselves into heaven or that it doesn't really matter if we live holy lives. God, help us, Lord. Help, help us to understand the gospel and understand how it shapes us. Lord, would you bless the bread, bless the cup. Lord, would you, you help us to, to understand the significance of this time together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.